Hello, everyone, and Merry Christmas to you all. And to all a good night. Wait, hold on. I'm trying <laughs> to think of something spooky to say. <laughs> we just started. Hold on. <laughs> Merry Chrysler. Happy Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> that's not spooky. That's just funny. <laughs> Why would you tell me Merry Chrysler when you know I celebrate Toyota-thon? <laughs> <laughs> I celebrate Happy Honda Days. Thank you very much. <laughs> Welcome to the Spooky Soup Podcast, everyone. I am Jesse. And I'm Tessa. Uh, so I have a, well, I, I have the historical story today. Yes, and I've got the online stories. Good, good. I have a jolly old Christmas story. Yes! Ho, ho, ho. Your last Christmas story scarred me. I think about it every day. So I have high expectations this time. Hmm. Okay. Well, I will say this. Um, you're not the only person that has said that to me. They said that was one of the more gruesome of the stories you've told. Probably the most gruesome. So I've decided to tone it back a little bit this year. And I have more of a mystery story. Ooh, okay. Than, dis- than a dude's chilling in his front room with the dead bodies of his family members. So. Okay. Well, I like the trade-off. I like a good mystery Right on. Me too. <laughs> Which I'm trying to find more of because I feel like I've done a lot of like murder episodes lately and I want to find some more mystery stuff for you yeah, guys. Some so, unsolved. Yeah. And y- if you guys like DM, DM us, let us know what kind of stories you want to hear. You want to hear one about Bigfoot? Let us know. I'll look for a Bigfoot story. I don't yeah, care. I will track him down and bring him on the podcast oh, yeah, for we'll, you. Exactly. We'll interview him. Yeah. I mean, we probably won't be able to understand what he's saying, but... <laughs> yeah you know just grunts that's all yeah you just wookies yeah wookie talk exactly okay well uh before we begin any just want to let you guys know any images that we have associated with our stories today we will post those on our instagram you can view them there if you would like to uh write in a story to us they can be fake they can be true as long as they're spooky we would love to read them on the podcast you can uh, email those to us at SpookySoupPodcast801 at gmail.com or DM them to us on our Instagram. Okay, Ta, take it away. Alrighty, so I recently ran into a cool piece of history and I wanted to share it with you and the audience. Have you ever heard of Sam and Colby? Yes, I have. They were famous viners back in the day. Yes. Now they're ghost hunters yes. on YouTube. Yeah, The pipeline there. <laughs> <laughs> so they, like you said, they're these YouTubers who go around and make paranormal investigation videos. Now, I don't watch Sam and Colby because I find a lot of their content to be sensationalized and easily debunkable. Same. Yes. And uh, that Pretty much that's ex- my same thoughts. Exactly. Yeah. And as much as I'd like to believe, it's just hard to when a simple knock or the failure of a piece of equipment can be chalked up to something natural to be fair you could say the same about ghost hunters and ghost adventures no those (laughs) guys are real okay (laughs) they're legit okay (laughs) they wouldn't lie to us you don't mess with zach bacon's have you seen the muscles on that guy you don't mess with him that's right that's right you know what does mess with him though spirits asbestos (laughs) that's true it does He he loves to wear his masks he does uh, we need to make like a Zach Bagans core TikTok video. 
There are so many out there. They're hilarious. <laughs> it's just like techno of him saying, my name is Zach Bagans. Anyways, so Sam and Colby, they recently posted a video series documenting their paranormal investigation of the house that inspired the Conjuring movies. And while there, two staff members of the house showed the crew a new trick that they've discovered that they use to speak with the dead. The pair would join hands and ask questions to, well, the dead. The dead in return would respond with a knock. The staff would say the alphabet out loud, and if they heard a knock after a letter, they would take note of it, and eventually they'd have a complete message from beyond. So essentially like a audio Ouija board, per se. At one point, the so-called spirit spelled out the name of Sam's deceased grandmother, and he had quite a big reaction to this. He started crying hysterically, and he like bent over on the ground, and when the ghost named other members of his family, um, he just got hit really hard because the ghost also said that they were watching over him. I'm sorry, is Sam the blonde hair? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Now, his reaction seems legit, and a few other people that they brought onto their docuseries had similar reactions when this trick was used on them. Now, after watching John Wolfe's reaction video on the matter, he really puts things into perspective. He spends nearly two hours going through piece by piece, debunking a lot of the evidence that Sam and Colby captured in the conjuring house using simple critical thinking skills. And that's not a dunk on Sam and Colby. That's more of a dunk of the people who believe these simple things. (laughs) A lot of it can be explained away by confirmation bias and electronic failure um, or interference from phones and smartwatches. Now, there's a point where one of Sam and Colby's walkie-talkies dies, and they say that it's paranormal intervention and that the battery was brand new. But John Wolfe did some digging. He took a screen grab of the dead walkie-talkie and took a quick look at the manufacturer's manual, which will show you that Sam was using his walkie-talkie on high-power mode, which drains the battery super fast and subsequently makes the battery die. So simply, his battery just died. That being said, how were the two staff members communicating with the dead, which gave Sam what seemed like a legit reaction? Now, there are two very realistic explanations for what the staff was doing. Number one, it's likely that they used a solenoid, which is a device that has a metal arm which moves forward at the click of a button. That movement results in a loud tapping sound, which explains why Sam and Colby could physically feel the taps on the ground of the house. It's like this metal arm like punching the ground oh yeah and the button that activates the solenoid device can easily be concealed within your sock and all it needs is a little toe tap for it to go off the other explanation which i think is so cool is the age-old use of joint popping you can get really good at popping your joints in your feet to sound like knocks Those who are well-practiced can even adjust the loudness of their pops and use the power of suggestion to make it seem like the footstep taps are walking away or coming closer by popping louder and louder. This joint pop technique was popularized by the Fox sisters in the 1800s, and this was a time of the rise of spiritualism. We've all seen those super cool, creepy old black and white photos of seances from the 1800s, 
And you know the kind where the psychic mediums would use magnets under the table to make objects move. and mm-hmm. They would like manipulate photos to look like there was a spirit in the room, stuff like that. I find all these old techniques super fascinating and really fun. Anyways, the three Fox sisters thrived for years using their joint popping technique to, quote unquote, communicate with the dead. It all started when Maggie and Katie pranked friends and family by using a series of questions and pop responses to speak with the ghosts. For example, their mom asked the ghost how many children she had, and when the ghost knocked the correct amount of times, it had to be real. News quickly spread of their newfound ability, and their other sister, Leah, was thrilled by this revelation. She saw this as a perfect business opportunity. Over the years, they would go on to perform for large crowds and would play the eager audience like a fiddle. They're widely attributed to the rise of spiritualism in the United States. Now, back to Sam and Colby. You're probably thinking, but Tessa, that's cool and all, but how would the Conjuring House staff have known who Sam's family is? Well, a simple Google search would reveal the name and nickname of Sam's grandma on her obituary. And what else is on obituaries typically? The family members of the one who passed away. Knowing that Sam and Colby, two very public figures, were coming to the house and had to fill out release forms with their name and information on it, it wouldn't be hard for the staff to figure out who their families were. I find all of this so fascinating because we as humans are always on the hunt for answers as to what's next or what happens after we die. Can we communicate with the dead? It's easy to get tricked by those who know how to play a crowd, especially when we enter the room with these kinds of vulnerable questions swimming in our brains. And this just goes to show how suggestible the human brain really is. So I thought that was cool. Everyone go check out John Wolfe's video diving into this. It's super cool. I'm going to get a lot of a lot of Conjuring House haters now. Oh, boo-hoo. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I love ghost stories. I love them. I still think there's a chance that they're real, but The Conjuring House to me just feels like such a gimmick at this point. Yeah. They've milked it for what it's worth. Totally. Yeah. Anyways, go watch that. It's fascinating. All right, and my next story comes to you from r slash scary stories by Log J Dog, and it's what's the scariest experience you've had? When I was around 13, me and my friend used to go on walks together at this local dog walking area. It was quite big and connected to woods, but was also in the middle of a bunch of homes which surrounded it. We used to walk around the trails there often and just talk and listen to music. There were certain places we didn't walk to in case we got lost and the signal wasn't great there, but this day we decided we were going to walk the extra mile following the trail. It was about a 20 minute walk and we ended up in a different named area, so we decided to follow our steps back once we realized we were too far away. It was around 9 o'clock now, pitch black outside, and being the quirky adventurous teens we were, we decided to walk back throughout the entire woods. Of course, we were on edge the entire time, using our phone flashlights and just making jokes to try and act like we weren't scared. We managed to trace our steps back, and so there was this long passage that led towards the road, so we could now see the road, which was the entrance. We got to about halfway down the path towards the entrance when I stopped because I had seen something in the distance. A tall, slender figure sprinted towards us almost army marching with its arms and legs straight and totally faceless. 
Bear in mind it was dark, but I froze in fear and my friend continued walking towards it. It was moving at a fast pace and was around eight feet tall, would be my guess. Now I was shouting at my friend, What is that? We need to get away right now. At first he didn't see anything or believe me, but in the space of around five seconds, I saw him stop and turn around and start sprinting toward where we had just come from. I remember screaming at him, We have to go now! And the adrenaline kicked in. We ran towards the bridge closest to us, and then up a hill which had a gate onto the public path. For a brief second, I remember as I jumped the gate, I turned around to see if it was still there. To my shock, it was running even faster, which in my head made me realize that this was no joke. My friend stumbled over the gate, cutting his hand, and we ran all the way to the shop in the town street. To this day, there's no real explanation, as even if it was someone dressed up, why chase us in that location at the time? And the way they ran was so not human-like. This was five years ago now, but it's safe to say the scariest thing that has ever happened to me. Now, of course, the comments are like, oh, you saw Slenderman, Slenderman sighting. But my favorite comment was, that's actually Jonathan. He's a great guy. He was just probably trying to reach you about your car's extended <laughs> warranty. <laughs> it's just Jonathan. It's just Jonathan. <laughs> that would be freaky, though. Yeah, it definitely would. I did think Slenderman, first thing, when you said tall and skinnier. Right. Yeah. Um. I mean, just anything approaching you like that. <laughs> <laughs> that story, I will say, was scarier than the Slenderman movie. <laughs> Do you remember that Sony came out with a Slenderman movie like 10 years after the Slenderman craze? Mm, oh, yeah. And it got such bad reviews. I totally forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, that's usually the response <laughs> I get from people. Alrighty, this one comes to you from Satiety Center. They asked, what are some true scary experiences that you Redditors have been through? Creepy strangers, unexplainable incidents, narrow misses, etc. Thousands of spiders replied, I once found myself in a cave along with eight or nine other people. It was in the middle of, Pen of the Pennsylvania wilderness, and the only entrance was a small hole in the ground. To enter, you had to sit on your butt, grab a tree root, and drop about seven feet down a steep wall to the floor. We all dropped in and spent at least an half an hour exploring the cave. My friend Dan taps me on the shoulder and whispers, Dude, look at the ceiling. The ceiling was just high enough above our heads to hide the thousands of spiders crawling around on it. We tried to keep quiet about it because we didn't want anyone to flip out, but there was just no stopping it. Seconds later, the whole group noticed them. Everyone got silent, and you could actually hear the spiders crawling on the surface of the stone. It was an extra nerve-wracking situation, because the only way to exit the cave was to basically jump up and pull yourself out of a hole surrounded by spiders. Two of the girls with us were terrified and refused to jump out. They just couldn't muster the courage to put their faces next to a giant spider's nest. They came around, though, and everyone got out safe. I had the honor of being the last one to exit, alone in a dark cave filled with spiders, and nobody around me would give me a boost. Fortunately, Dan was brave enough to reach down in and give me a hand. When, when we first discovered the cave, we were all like, I can't believe we've never heard of this place. Now I know why. That cave sucks. <laughs> and 
I just want to say that thousands of spiders, like, yeah, that name checks out. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was a defining moment in their lives. You can tell. Definitely. Yeah, I've seen videos of people who go cave exploring, and then they just get to a section, and it's just the entire walls are just covered in spiders, but they got to push through. Ugh. See, that's like and the worst. Yeah. And like they brush the wall and just a whole chunk of spiders comes falling. And of course it crawls all over them. And they're usually like the daddy long leg ones. Yeah. I hate it. I hate it so much. I have severe arachnophobia. (laughs) What? No way. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, I keep a vacuum near my room now because (laughs) over the last two nights there have been two spiders in my room. (laughs) Only two. Yeah. Only two so far. I've been lucky (laughs) these last two nights. Hmm. You're like, I remember putting five in there last time I came to visit. I put a whole family in there. (laughs) And I just want to read one other good response from that question. I posted this before, but here we go again. It was grade 11, and I had just moved to a new town. I quickly became attracted to this one girl and would have given my left nut for a date. We got paired up to be partners in our food and fabrics class, and I totally pulled out all the stops. I was doing whatever it took to get a date with this girl. In the class, there were a couple of projects where you would have to sew a pillowcase or a pair of pajamas, but my family didn't have a sewing machine, so we would do the projects at her house. Upon these visits, I began to question how badly I wanted this girl. She lived in what appeared to be a wood cabin, and her father seemed legitimately insane. The walls were lined with animal skulls. The guy was a hardcore hunter. He had bearskin rugs and antlers all over the place. He would always walk around with the shirt off, drinking a Budweiser, chewing tobacco, and carrying a shotgun. He never spoke a word to me. By this time, I was starting to gain some friendships in the school, and one of the guys I met, Neil, noticed that I'd taken a liking to her. He then asked me if I'd heard about her parents. He then proceeded to tell me that her dad killed her mom and got away with it. Her body was found in the middle of town, pumped by a couple of rounds from a shotgun. He got off on the charges from lack of proof, and she had to live with him because he was her last living relative. At this point, I was like, WTF? The story made no sense, and I wasn't about to believe it, but it definitely kind of rattled me. There was no way that I was going to bring it up with her. Anyways, a little time passes, and I ask her out. I go to her place to grab her, and she's gorgeous. Her dad makes a comment about, you know what'll happen if you touch her. And suddenly the story is the only thing I can think about. We went skating, then to a movie, but I was terrified the whole time. I just couldn't get the thought out of my head that her dad was going to kill me when we got back to her place. So after a subpar date, I start the long drive back to her place. We get to the end of her driveway, which was a long driveway, and she gets me to park and turn off the lights. She wants a kiss. At this point, forget her dad. I lean over and put some moves on. We stop and I turn the lights back on. There's blood in the snow at the end of the driveway. I wanted to say something, but didn't want to sound like I was afraid. Her dad was a hunter, right? I'm sure there's a logical explanation. I put the car in drive and start the winding drive down her driveway. The trail of blood seems to be getting thicker and I'm getting more freaked out. She still says nothing and she's fixing her hair in the mirror. I keep driving more blood. 
I turn the last corner of her driveway and see my headlights shift from the trees to her father. Standing in the middle of the driveway, covered in blood. Blood all around him. Huge knife in hand. And what appeared to be a naked human body lying at his feet. I start hyperventilating. Suddenly, I'm crying, and I don't know why. I piss my pants. Her dad takes me to the hospital. Turns out, I have had mild asthma for my entire life and had a panic attack. The dad found a bear at the end of the driveway, shot it, drug it down the driveway, and skinned it, or at least the part that I saw, before we got back. Anyways, that was a little over three years ago, and I'm still with the girl. Her dad calls me a pussy all the time, except we've gone on hunting trips together, and I'm pretty sure he's a fan. Neil, the guy I mentioned earlier, was a jealous ex, and his parents had split up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I don't know. What a whirlwind. <laughs> I would have thought the exact same thing, man. Especially like, after that story. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And All if right. you've seen a hairless bear, they look really weird. So I can imagine what he was thinking. Or what he wasn't thinking. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You ready for my story? I was born ready. All right. So like we mentioned, my last Christmas episode was a little much, so this one's more of a mystery, a little, little bit toned down, but it's still a head-scratcher. So Christmas is one of the best times of the year. For most, it is the best time of the year, unless you're like Tess and I, where Halloween is our favorite holiday, but Christmas is for sure a close second. The day is full of presents, food, family, friends, decorations, and ugly sweaters. For some, it can be a re... re- For some, it could be a recurring nightmare of awful events that transpired on that jolly but fateful day. Our story begins Christmas Eve, 1945, in Fayetteville, West Virginia. It was a typical relaxing and joyful Christmas Eve evening for the Sodder family. To give you a quick background, George and Jenny Sodder immigrated to the States from Italy, and they owned a trucking company that hauled coal from the local mine. The two sat on the couch as they watched their nine children anxiously wait for Santa Claus. Uh, Just to note real quick, they had a tenth child, just didn't live at home at the time. After a while, the kids were sent off to bed so that Santa could come down their chimney and leave gifts behind. Around 12.30 a.m., the house phone rang and Jenny groggily answered it. A woman's voice can be heard on the other line, but all Jenny heard was a weird laugh and the woman asking for someone that Jenny did not recognize. Jenny replied with, you have the wrong number, and hung up. Just a half hour later, at 1 a.m., Jenny woke up again to a loud thump on the roof. She thought nothing of it and went back to sleep. But soon afterwards, she woke up again to a certain smell that filled the air. A fire broke out in the house. George and Jenny tried to wake up all the kids, but were only able to escape the burning blazes with four out of the nine children. George realized the other five children were still stuck in the attic, where they had all, where the five of them had gathered to wait for Christmas morning. He couldn't fight the fire from the inside as the stairs were covered in flames. So he had a thought to reach the attic window from the outside. When George wrapped around the house to retrieve his ladder, he came to find that the ladder was missing. Frantic, he had an idea to pull up one of his coal trucks to the side of the house so he could climb on top of it. George tried starting both of his coal trucks, but unfortunately, they were both dead. It didn't make any sense to him. They had both worked flawlessly the day before. 
While George was preoccupied with the trucks, Marion, the 19-year-old daughter, ran over to the neighbors to call the fire department. She had tried their own house phone before escaping the roaring flames, but it wasn't working. George, Jenny, and the four children who made it out of the house had no choice but to watch their house burn down with their family members trapped inside. Within only 45 minutes, the entire house had burned to the ground and then collapsed. It took the fire department... Actually, how long do you think it took the fire department to get there? A long time. Seven hours. Seven hours? And they were only two and a half miles away. How many fires were set that day? (laughs) (laughs) So... The reasoning for this is because it was during World War II, and so most of the men in the town were gone fighting in the war. And so the few men, able-bodied men, that could uh, be firefighters in the town, it, it was like they, were, they didn't have a fire department. They were just a bunch of volunteers, essentially. So what happened was um, one of the neighbors had to leave, wake up, they Marion went to the neighbor's house, you, you know, tried to call the fire department, no one answered. So the neighbors then had to get in the car, drive to the chief's home, wake him up, and then by that point, you know, just trying to get a hold of all the other volunteers, they had to call them each one by one, but they were all sleeping. Mm. So, yeah. So now you're probably thinking, what happened to the other five children that were stuck in the attic? The family totally expected to find bones or, or smell burning flesh, but all they found was nothing. This is the big mystery of the entire case. Where were the bodies? Oh, creepy. The, the fire department did a quick sweep and concluded that the five children perished in the fire, but it didn't make sense. All they found were uh, bone fragments and some internal organs, whatever that means. It was confirmed that the cause of the fire was faulty wiring. Fire Chief F.J. Morris concluded that the fire was definitely hot enough to cremate the bodies and the bones. Those who watched the house burn down noticed that it did not smell like rotting flesh or heard screams from the children that were left in the house. At this point, nothing was making sense. George and Jenny knew something was very, very wrong here. There should be more evidence of five children that died in the fire, but they're really wasn't there was nothing they also realized that if if it was due to faulty wiring why were the lights on the christmas tree still lit when they escaped the house mm, weird why were the lights in the hallway still on why were some of the lights in the bedrooms on the fire department's in on this maybe the family waited five days for the fire marshals to come do an investigation before george finally he pretty much just had it and he bulldozed the house to make a memorial garden for his children. A memorial was held on January 2nd, 1946. Jenny, being super smart and an investigator of her own, tried to figure out if it would be possible for bones to burn that fast. She experiments with small animal bones, and they never fully burned. She asked a local crematorium worker how long and how hot bones would have to be to fully burn, and the answer she received was 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit for two hours. Now remember, the house burned down in only 45 minutes. And that's obviously way less time. <laughs> remember the ladder that was missing I told you about? It was found in a ditch 75 feet away, but 
to me, this could easily be uh, debunked as one of the kids using it to build a fort or something. That's something I would have done. Yeah. Or it could also be any person's ladder at that point. Oh, it was the ladder. Okay. From, from the house. I hope he had his name on it or something. <laughs> yeah. Now the family's starting to believe that the fire was started not by faulty wiring, but intentionally. Later in the year, a local bus driver came forward with, a, with his testimony of what he saw that night when he drove past the solder home. He witnessed figures throwing fireballs at the house. This was starting to make more sense because in the early springtime, Jenny was attending to the memorial garden that took place at their home when she came across a ball she had never noticed before. This could possibly explain the thump on the roof Jenny heard Christmas Eve night. In Fayetteville, there was a small, close-knit Italian immigrant community. George and Jenny never mentioned why they left Italy to come to the States, but George was very vocal about his distaste for Benito Mussolini, the Italian prime minister at the time. This sparked some outrage and contention within that small uh, community of immigrants. In October, a few months before the fire, a life insurance salesman issued a chilling threat to George saying, your damn house is going up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. You're going to be paid for the dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini. I mean, that's right. That, that's the case. Yeah, the, yeah. Case is solved, right? Case shut. <laughs> Initially dismissed. Wait, wait. Was that a life insurance salesman? Ooh. Yes. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yes, it was a life insurance salesman. So initially dismissing it as frustration over a failed sale, George couldn't have anticipated the unsettling accuracy of the prediction that unfolded. Ironically, the insurance salesman happened to be one of the jurors during the investigation. The tragic deaths of the children were ultimately deemed accidental following these perplexing events. With all of this evidence and speculation, George and his family were convinced that the five children did not die in the fire. They were kidnapped. George and Jenny invested in a massive billboard displaying the message, what happened to our children? Kidnapped, murdered, or burned? Alongside this, they offered a substantial reward of $5,000. And back then, or I guess to now, it's equivalent to $217,000. So, uh, for any valuable information, they just, they just wanted to know. Numerous reports flooded the police following the children's disappearance, and a particular witness um, said that they served them breakfast the morning after the fire. This individual worked at a hotel in Charleston, situated 50 miles west of the home. The report goes as follows. The children were accompanied by two women and two men all of Italian extraction. They registered about midnight. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly, in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and refused to allow um, me to talk to these children. One of the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me. I sensed that I was being frozen out, and so I said nothing more. They left early the next morning. One of the missing children was Louis Sauter. It wasn't until 22 years later that Jenny received an anonymous letter from Central City, Kentucky, accompanied by a photo believed to be Louis. The picture featured a message on the back that read, 
Louis Sauter, I love brother Frankie, L-L-I-L, boys. And then there's a number, and it says A90132435. It's hard to distinguish between if, if it's a 32 or 35. Some speculate that this is a coded message that Louis finally was able to get a message out to his parents. Um, and some people speculate that the number is a license plate number. Easily could be. Also, it could be that LLIL was a, like, uh, like Illinois. So it's like Illinois A90132. Yeah, there's a lot of theories out there on, on what this is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to have to take a stab at that later. Mm-hmm. And then there was also another theory where I think Louie had a nickname for one of his other siblings that he, he called him Frankie. And so that was supposed to be a hint that like only, hey, this is actually me. Only we know about this, this you know, family nickname. Like, we're okay, we're alive, it's us. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know, yeah. there's so many... That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Concerned and hopeful, George and Jenny enlisted the services of a private detective to investigate the photo and identify the sender. Regrettably, the detective reached a dead end, leaving the Sodders frustrated. George likened the situation to hitting a rock wall, stating, We can't go any further. Despite the inability to confirm the photo's authenticity, the parents chose to frame it and display it above their fireplace. The mystery surrounding the disappearance of the Sauter children has endured for decades, and even though the case gained significant attention, the FBI has never taken part in the investigation. In 1947, George and Jenny reached out directly to J. Edgar Hoover, making a plea for his assistance. This is what they received back from Hoover himself. He said, Although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character character and does not come within investigative jurisdiction jurisdiction of this bureau. Several FBI agents expressed their readiness to assist the family pending approval from local authorities. However, inexplicably, both the police and fire department of Fayetteville declined to grant the necessary permission. Jeez. What's going on? Yeah. Everyone's in on it. Everyone. And it's like, what? Yeah, it's just like what (laughs) so George passed away in 1969 and Jenny passed away in 1989 the last survivor the or the the last remaining survivor um, of the fire is Sylvia Sauter who was two years old at the time of the fire but she recently passed away in 2021 dang so there's a good chance that if the siblings survive they're probably dead now yeah yeah the missing children are Maurice 14, Martha Lee, 12, Louis, 10, Jenny, 8, and Betty, 6. The case is still unsolved. The parents, did they did everything they could to find out what happened to their children. They searched high and low. They did their own investigating. They put up billboards. They reached out to the FBI, uh, local law enforcement. So you can tell that the parents, they really tried everything they could to track down what happened to their kids. Yeah, they don't seem like a guilty party. Yeah. I feel immense sorrow for the parents and the siblings who spent the remainder of their lives without ever discovering the fate or whereabouts of their children and siblings. But the question is, 
if they were kidnapped, why did they never reach out except for this possible photo of Louis? Some speculate that they're under, you know, they're part of some Italian, they're, they're under like control of some Italian mob or Mussolini followers that, you know, have literally kept them in like maybe a jail cell or something and (laughs) won't let them see daylight. That also, yeah, like I think someone took them. It doesn't seem likely that they would have died in that fire. Um, But also, what would the motive have been if the kids were kidnapped and they like never reached out for ransom money or for Mm -hmm. the parents to come find them? And there was never any, like obviously the parents had money because they were willing to give out a ton of money for tips. So, yeah, that's interesting. I wonder what the motive truly was. Same. I don't know. Maybe one day we'll find out. Yeah. I I mean, we recently found out who the Summerton man was. Yeah. So, years later, we could have an explanation. Who knows? Mm -hmm. So, there you go. That is the mysterious disappearance of the Sodder children. Ugh, creepy. Well, I hope it gets solved. Me too. And I hope everyone has a great Christmas and doesn't get burned or kidnapped. (laughs) And if you must experience anything bad this Christmas, hopefully it's just a little visit from Krampus and nothing else. (laughs) Indeed. Okay. Do you have anything else for us? That's it for me. All right, guys. Merry Christmas, and we will scare you in the next one. Stay spooky. Bye.